everybody and welcome back to the test screening. It's been too long. It's been way too long. Do you even remember what a film is at this point? I had to go online, I had to Google the definition of cinema to even remember what my job is. But thankfully, it did all come rushing back after seeing the list of the Golden Globe nominations. <laughs> that was a flawless segue. <laughs> I just looked to say, that was, that was so smooth. <laughs> well, you know, it popped, up, it popped up on my newsfeed on my laptop and it was, it just, it reminded me of why it is we do what we do and got me excited for debating the nominations and what should and should not win. Right, okay, let's get straight into it then. Um, best motion picture drama, Golden Globes nominations. What are they, Billy? So we've got uh, the Palm Door winning Anatomy of a Fall, uh, Martin Scorsese's new epic drama Killers of the Flower Moon, Bradley Cooper's Maestro, the Leonard Bernstein biopic, uh, Oppenheimer, Past Lives, and The Zone of Interest. Now, disclaimer, The Zone of Interest isn't out in the UK yet, and it's not available to rent and stream online, so that one is a bit of a blind spot for me, but I have seen the other five works, and in my opinion, even though I doubt this will win, my favourite currently is Maestro. I'm a very big fan of that work. I was kind of, if you'd asked me earlier in the year, I would have probably said I was anticipating it be Killers of the Flower Moon, but Maestro was ultimately the one that came out on top for me in that category. Past Lives is also a really wonderful drama and a big favourite for me this year as well. And Ask Me Before is terrific as well. It's a really solid category overall. And Oppenheimer, even though I'm not sure I would call it one of my absolute favourites of the year, it's still you know no slouch in this category either. I mean, so Maestro would be my personal favourite. But I think in the case of this, we've got kind of a perfect storm of a late career highlighting gem from you know, a, a revered, super established director with a great cast, really burning, prescient, prescient and important current subject matter that feels quite zeitgeisty with the whole true crime thing that's going on in the moment and feels very epic, very grand and you know, very cinematic in the, in the classic sense, kind of like an old-fashioned drama with the, with the Western and epic crime vibes with Killers of the Flower Moon. So if you were asking me which I think would win, I think I'd I'd put your money on that one. Moving on to best motion picture, musical or comedy. And there's a few in here that I expected and a few here that I've not even heard of. Uh, well, okay, there's one in here that I haven't heard of. American Fiction. Have you seen that? No, it, that's um, not out in the UK yet. There's always kind of a few holdovers. Oh, interesting holdovers. It's being one of the nominations. There's always a few. There's more holdovers yeah. than you. Yeah, so. absolutely. There's um, there's always a few holdovers from kind of US cinema releases into like 2024 for the UK releases. So there's always kind of a little bit of catch up that I have to do in sort of January through to March when I'm sort of trying to see all of the awards haul. And uh, I only kind of recently actually heard about American fiction. You know, Barack Obama listed it as one of his favorite films of 2023, and I sort of sort of recent couple of reviews from sort of American critics that I follow online who have given it very have sung a lot of praise on it. It's um and it seems to be I can't remember the plot exactly, but it seems to be a very kind of interesting indictment of racial stereotypes and sort of how that pervades through literature and how that can lead to 
arguably like artistic success for this central character portrayed by Jeffrey Wright. So that seems like it's tapping into something quite zeitgeisty and also it's proven very kind of sharp and funny and a real hit with audiences. Air, I thought, was very solid. I thought kind of we actually reviewed that earlier in the year, didn't we? And uh, I'm kind of pleased it's here. I thought it was better than I expected. I was pleasantly surprised by it. So I'm glad it's getting mentioned here. Obviously, Barbie. <laughs> Barbie had my vote. It's because it's the only one yeah. I've seen. Yes, Barbie probably has. Yeah, Barbie probably has my vote as well. We'll be. I, w- I don't want to say too much about the holdovers or May December until we until next week, where we will almost certainly be talking about them. Um, I haven't seen Poor Things yet. That's on the slate for for next week, next Friday when it's out on the uh, the twelfth. I believe I'll be watching that. Um, the Holdovers isn't out for a couple of weeks. I kind of saw it early through renting and streaming. And that is well worth checking out once it's out. There's, In the case of May-December, there's always at least one film with the Golden Globes that, that people just complain about because it shouldn't really be in the category. Because, you know, there's a bit of a misinterpretation or a, a grey area around whether or not it's actually a comedy. There is, I think there are certainly elements of kind of blackly comedic deadpan humour in May-December that's kind of woven in with the darkness of the story but overall I would say it's more broadly kind of a very kind of creeping, ominous and kind of caustic satire, you know, satirical drama than it is a straight black comedy even though I have seen it described as a black comedy in certain scenarios I wouldn't broadly put it in this category though I do think it leans more towards drama it's certainly not a musical (laughs) there were no big showy song and dance numbers of this and i would be very worried if there were considering what it's about but we any shall... of these, apart from barbie do any of these have musical numbers in it uh no not unless poor things does or american fiction but i from what i heard they don't so poor um things, it like... looks so weird that it wouldn't really surprise me if there was <laughs> no absolutely not absolutely not there was even <laughs> like considering it's yorgos lanthimos who made the favorite and there was i wouldn't say it there were kind of elements, there were sort of performative scenes in The Favourite where you kind of had Princess Anne looking like she wanted to die and just like was so unhappy with her existence while everyone in the, the Ponzi uh, Tudor wigs were prancing around her playing like harpsichords and harps and stuff. There's that great scene where they're, um, they're out in the courtyard and they're playing her a song and she screams, Leave! at the top of her lungs out the window at them. Get out at once, and then they just like kind of curtsy and just run off. Um, so yeah, based on the director's previous work, I wouldn't be surprised if there was a musical number in Poor Things, but we shall we shall have to wait and see. And now we go on to Best Motion Picture Animated. Boy in the Heron, we're going to talk about later. Um, I haven't sorry, I'm going to do that again because the uh, my phone went off. Um, Boy in the Heron we're going to talk about later um, I've not seen it, I'm actually seeing it this afternoon, so you better Ooh. not spoil it for me Billy No, no spoilers no, no spoilers at all <laughs> I'm very excited for it um, and then we have a few, this is a weird mix to me, because there are some here which I'm like hell yeah that deserves to be there and somewhere I'm like really really <laughs> Wish I have heard nothing but mediocre to bad things about. Me too. And Mario, come on. I mean, it was fine. 
It was a Mario movie. It did the job. Does it deserve any kind of award? I don't. I don't think so. Do you? Do you agree or do you disagree? I mean, to be honest, I can't fully comment because I didn't watch it, but I I didn't hear the greatest things. I mean, I, I, a friend of the podcast actually, um, Harriet Taylor from Switch Bristol. She, <laughs> we were kind of one week earlier in the year we were kind of exchanging thoughts on what to go see and things like that and what we were interested in and she went oh yeah mario hot garbage <laughs> were her words and i was like you know what i'll there stay away go. from that one yeah so um harriet taylor has given the definitive review <laughs> we'll just we'll go by her word her word on her word on mario is gospel you know it made nearly 1.4 billion at the box office worldwide my god that doesn't surprise me to be honest I, I felt like it did well and a lot of people enjoyed it and I'm, I'm you know if you're in that demographic sure but i just like it was chris pratt playing an italian plum i i just <laughs> i just don't think it deserves any kind of trophies no I'd i don't either on the other hand give it all the trophies especially since what the animators had to go through to get that finished i yeah give it all the awards i'm very much here for it i i kind of in my head i'm like it's going to be boy in the heron isn't it that oh i don't know i th i feel like spider-verse has been so raved about and is and was so popular earlier this year with audiences and critics alike and it just seems to be an expansion of a film that that won the animated Os oscar not just Golden Globe last year, well, not last year, a few years ago when it came out. Um, I feel like that almost for me is the shoe in. But, you know, Hayao Miyazaki's pot our potential last film, supposed last film, you know, they, they might yeah, want to go. Is it his last film? I'm not sure I believe him. The man, <laughs> I'm not the sure man I believe him like, either. He's, he's like a vampire. He can't be killed. He can't, like, you know, he'll keep coming back until. I don't know until he's made all the films <laughs> he's putting disney absolutely to shame it's like oh they're in we're in a creative rut at the moment says disney and then studio ghibli's like we cannot stop this crazy little japanese old japanese man from making f films about grief and just weird spirit worlds we just can't yeah he's insatiable so um so maybe because of legacy and also the quality of the film because it's no it's no slouch either um they might want to give it to the boy in there and um, but that's that's going to be an interesting matchup. I know which of those two I prefer, but we shall get onto that later. Um, also, just shout out to Makoto Shinkai. I mean, I know I wasn't a fan of Suzume, but um, but great to see him getting awards representation because you know Weathering with You's good, and your name is a masterpiece. And then we've got cinematic and box office achievement. Is this a new category? I think it is. I yeah, I, I believe I believe it is. Um, after having seen reports earlier this year i think this was created mainly to sort of offset because you know you had kind of blockbusters getting into the best picture category that were not necessarily the best films artistically but in a way it should be recognized for how much they contributed to the industry earlier in the year and were very solid films in their own right so you know i wouldn't at all you know rank films like john wick 4 or Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1 as, you know, top 10 of this year, or really like Top Gun Maverick of, you know, a couple of years ago, um, which I believe did get a Best Picture nomination that year. But, you know, because of the scale and 
of the productions and the money they roped in, especially during this kind of shaky time in the, in in the industry financially, I do feel like they should be recognised mm-hmm. um, for what they managed to do. I mean, I, I actually think it's kind of tricky to tell what's going to be, what's going to win here. Because, you know, Oppenheimer, for a very kind of insular, subjective, uh, psychological drama, for that film to rake in almost a billion dollars is insane in this current climate. Um, Barbie was an absolute juggernaut. Super Mario also, in ex- even with the popularness, popularity of that, of that brand and that IP, $1.36 billion is still pretty insane of a pull-in. And, you know, I mean, I am biased because I am a gigantic Swifty. But <laughs> Tay-Tay coming through with the biggest concert film of all time. You know, it's it's grossed. I want to say $250 million worldwide, which for a concert film is absolutely out of this world. It's far and away the most successful concert film ever made and was great. You know, I saw it and it was a, you know, I'm a fan of her music anyway, but as a concert film, it was really excellent too. And I, I don't know, I am biased, but I feel like, I don't know, I feel like, also, the stuff she had with all, with all the distributors, you know, nobody wanting to distribute the era's tall concert film. And then basically going, okay, I'll just do it through my own company. Screw all of you. I'll do it myself. And then it becoming the most successful concert film of all time. I don't know. That's kind of badass. I, I kind of want to see that get rewarded. Well, this seems to happen a lot with Taylor Swift. Like, people constantly underestimating her, even though she's huge. Yeah, like, she, she literally is the music industry. And it's a theme in her career, and she's just, you know, it. the fact that she's been able to go off it alone and, you know, just keep keep breaking it in, you know, all power to Taylor Swift. I am a fan. Yeah. Power, power to Tato. <laughs> shall we quickly, um, before we move on, shall we quickly rattle through the, um, the actors, the best performances? Yes, go on. So, uh, female actress... In a drama, Annette Benning for Nyad, Kaylee Sweeney for Priscilla, Kerry Mulligan for Maestro, Greta Lee for Past Lives, Lily Gladstone for Killers of the Flower Moon, and Sandra Hula for Anatomy of a Fall. Fantastic category. Personal favourite, I'm kind of, I loved Kerry Mulligan and Maestro. I think it's maybe the most solid work of her career. Um, Sandra Hula's work in Anatomy of a Fall, though, is so layered and so nuanced. Um, it's it's a, it's a tough call between those two. Although I feel like people, I think rightfully, are favouring Lily Gladstone, um, but she isn't the top contender in this category for me. I don't think she has quite the range and emotional power that maybe some people have said she does, but she is certainly very solid too. Uh, male actor in a drama: Andrew Scott in All of Us Strangers, Barry Keoghan in Saltburn. Bradley Cooper in Maestro, Killian Murphy in Oppenheimer, Coleman Domingo in Rustin, and Leonardo DiCaprio in Killers of the Flower Moon. Super strong. Again, personal p- favourite for me, Bradley Cooper in Maestro. I think it's a great, excellent evocation of Leonard Bernstein that doesn't feel just like caricature. It feels like you genuinely, underneath the accent, underneath the makeup and the mannerisms, I feel like you do get the emotion and the repression through. Feel like that does kind of come across and his sort of physical performance in the conducting scenes in the concert scenes is just incredible me andrew scott can do no wrong though i've not seen all of the strangers when is it out in me the neither. uk 
uh, wait. 20, the 28th, I think, is in a couple of weeks. 28th. Oh, so far away. I, I do really want to watch it. I do think that he's an incredible actor. So it wouldn't, I wouldn't be surprised, even though I've not seen it, it wouldn't surprise me if he got it, just because I know he's definitely got the potential to deliver that kind of performance, depending on the quality of the, the film and the writing. Um, Ray Keegan, I would... I'd love to see him do it, <laughs> even though Saltburn <laughs> was my favourite. I enjoyed it fine. No, it's, a, it's a weird film. Everyone's talking about it at the moment. Like, it's everywhere, just because it went on to um, Amazon. And I respect the hell out of it, but at the same time, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't my favourite. of <laughs> No. Um, but yeah, strong category, but I... I, I appreciate that Bradley Cooper's like got a good chance, but for me, I'm I'm just a massive Andrew Scott fan, and I think he's he's got potential to do it. Yeah, I uh, I'm a big fan of his as well, and I'm very sort of it's it's nice to see him getting awards recognition again. So I'm I'm looking forward to seeing what what he delivers in All of Us Strangers, especially because the the log line, the plot summary, does sort of like speak to me. On a yeah. on kind of an, an emotional and creative level, I'm looking forward to that. I've only seen two of the musical comedy female performances, so I'm not really going to comment on that one. I don't feel like I've seen enough to be able to say. And uh, musical or comedy for male actor, I uh, Nicholas Cage is super well cast in Dream Scenario. He owns that role. I think it's it's one of his best performances in years. Um, Timothy Chalamet and Wonka. We'll get onto in a little while. Um, not one of Joaquin Phoenix's greatest performances in Bo is Afraid, but certainly looked very... <laughs> he did a very good job of looking terrified for three hours, put it that way. And... But Paul I Giamatti... <laughs> yeah, most of, <laughs> most of us could. Just, uh, just look at our student loans, that'll do it. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, Paul, um, Paul Giamatti is on such great form in The Holdovers. It's so... It's comedic and kind of curmudgeon and grumpy, but also just really, really compassionate and warm-hearted. It's um, that's that's a wonderful film, a wonderful, wonderful performance. It was a great reminder of why he is a real personal favourite of mine. Um, yeah, he would be my he would be my selection here. Nice one. Right, we're gonna have to jump straight into the reviews now because we have spent way too long talking about this. We're rusty, Billy. We need to remember <laughs> <laughs> to keep ourselves to time. My God, so. First review up is Wonka, and this is one that I've actually seen, so I'm going to be able to contribute. So Wonka is the prequel, kind of, to um, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. I'd say that it's probably more of a prequel to the Gene Wilder um, version. That it, was it the 70s that that film came out? I want to say it's 1978. It's definitely the 70s. Yeah, seventies, the seventies classic. One of one of my favourites, actually, as a kid, was that um, Willy Wonka. Although it is terrifying in its own way. <laughs> um, what were your thoughts on this? Because I am divided. Oh, I am. It's nice to know we are in agreement on our ambivalence towards this. <laughs> so, I mean, just I mean. The most potentially deal-breaking aspect of Wonka is kind of the central performance itself, because you know when you're trying to conjure an at least serviceable take on an established character, you know embodied as shiveringly, marvelously as Gene Wilde did Willy Wonka, it's going to be a very tall order anyway. And you know Johnny Depp was—I mean, there's not much of a 
there's not much competition there. He was kind of cold and pointed and uh, sugary, pun very much intended. And without any of the whimsy or weariness teetering, teetering on the edge of insanity that Gene Wilder brought. So, you know, his performance was a little bit off-putting. But, you know, to try and do Gene Wilder is, like, borderline impossible. In the case of Timothy Chalamet, who I'm a big fan of generally, I know you're not quite as deep on the hype train as I am, but um, I kind of I was rooting for him to do well, and I thought he was decent overall. I mean, he's a competent singer and dancer with his, us- with his usual boatload of charisma. His vocal tone I don't think is especially unique or powerful, but it does the job just fine. I think he sells the young, almost naive optimism and kind of bright-eyed confidence of Willy Wonka kind of coming to this city to sort of set up his sort of chocolate-making dynasty and empire well. But I'm, I'm, if I'm being honest, through a lot of his kind of performative speech patterns and really theatrical line delivery, it kind of read to me like a very seriously and commonly like brooding dramatic actor trying to play upbeat and not quite completely fitting into it and seeming completely natural. He felt a little bit awkward, like some kind of, hey guys, I'm Willy Wonka. Like it felt quite put on. Like it didn't always feel like it was, you know, it felt like he was performing rather than kind of fully, you know, inhabiting the character. But he did bring an earnestness to the role that I think you can get on side with. You know, what were your thoughts on his performance? I I liked him. I liked him more than I thought I would, to be honest, because I remember when I heard about the casting and I was like, wait, really? Um, and I was pleasantly surprised. I was pleasantly surprised by the fact that he could sing um, as well as he can. I quite enjoyed some of the songs. I can't remember a single one of them, but I quite enjoyed them while they were happening in front of me. I've got um, that written down, actually. <laughs> I did. Um, yeah, I, I appreciated his charisma. The one thing that um, bugged me is that kind of over-optimistic. This is more of a writing thing than a his performance kind of thing. Um, but it was... Okay, the the actual story of Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, or Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, is it is kind of creepy. It's a, it's a fable. It's about, like, not being too greedy. It's about, like, not having things in excess and things like that. And there's a bit of that here, but... That darkness is kind of missing, and I think that really shows in his character, actually, where he's too whimsy, and I didn't quite... I thought that, because it was a prequel, we were going to try... We were going to understand why he would put the children through the kind of torture that he does (laughs) through the chocolate factory. You know, I thought we were going to get a glimpse into that kind of darkness. You know, he's almost a bad fairy in the book and the um and the original films which is like that gene wilder kind of sinister like it's wonderful and it's amazing but he's a he's a mad scientist at the end of the day and there was that yeah it was just something didn't quite connect for me where because he was so chipper and kind of false all the time i thought we were going to get to something a bit deeper and we never really did no i i didn't really feel like his I think when you watch a prequel and you're getting a younger version of a character that's and the performance is very clearly inspired by the older version of the character played by a previous actor, you kind of want to feel like that the person you get at the end of the film is kind of naturally going to progress into the character we've already seen in the, kind of the older incarnation of him. So, you know, you want to feel like the Timothy Chalamet Wonka we get at the end of this 
is going to naturally evolve into the person we get in Gene Wilder. And I don't really see that personally. I think that connection is kind of tenuous, even if some of like the performative aspects of his characterization of Wonka does kind of remind me of, to a certain extent, of some of Gene Wilder's affectations, although not nearly as, you know, attention grabbing and magical. On just while we're on the topic of the story, I felt like I felt like Wonka's kind of suffered from two main issues. And I thought I thought at the time it was kind of fairly good at building up a story and world that kind of contextually fit the Wonka universe of kind of magical chocolate making. But afterwards, the more and more I thought about it, the more uninspired the framework of the narrative began to look. Like, like this device of being inadvertently trapped by a villain and forced to repay a debt that can then be escaped with a get-rich-quick scheme based around, you know, the protagonist's main talent. The rival competitors who are scared by the protagonist's talent and intimidated and they're trying to silence him for their own sort of greed and excess. A nemesis from the past who may turn out to be not so much of a nemesis after all. It kind of, when you look at it like that, there are lots of kind of origin story tropes that kind of start to make the framework of the narrative feel quite uninspired and make it feel kind of run in the mill, even if it's pretty serviceably delivered. And, you know, like you said about the music, whilst it was perfectly fine while it was on, and like the choreography is elastic and extravagant and buoyant, and it's, you know, mid-paced edit, so it's not too, you know, rapidly cutting, and it's framed pretty wide, so, you know, you get a good sense of the space and the geography of the, the dance numbers and musical numbers. I could not, hum- aside from Pure Imagination and the Oompa Loompa song, which are old songs anyway, you know, they're very well known at this point i couldn't sing you a single melody or vocal line or chorus from any song in the film apart from maybe scrub scrub i tell why i couldn't do one and that's what one <laughs> do you have a sweet tooth I oh do. yeah <laughs> i tried <laughs> <heard> that <laughs> yeah i just i just think the music was kind of melodically a bit flat and a bit unmemorable they weren't snappy enough i wanted them to be catchier but you know and that's yeah. That's not a, a total deal breaker, I guess. I just because they were kind of fine while they were on. But there then wasn't... think about the original, the seventies one. Can you remember a song from that that isn't um, Imagination or uh, the Unpull of the Sun? But I don't feel like that's no. But I don't feel like that's a fair comparison because I haven't seen it in about fifteen years. <laughs> yeah, but like no, I have seen it more recently, and the songs that. The, the songs in that aren't that strong, apart from those mentioned ones. So I wonder if maybe they were attempting to copy the style of it, but the style of those songs isn't that catchy anyway. Because I know that there's like a Veruca Salt song, which is rubbish. <laughs> from memory, it was almost my <laughs> least favourite. And there was a... Um, yeah, I can't... The, the, oh, there's like Cheer Up Charlie or something at the beginning, but I don't think... And not as good... Not as pure imagination. I think that that is very firmly the highlight. Yeah. Okay, so maybe that's maybe a point of comparison. I'd be interested to go back and watch. Because now I do, I, having seen it, I do want to go back and revisit the original Gene Wilder version just to see what that's like kind of all these years later. But, um, but yeah, no, that's an interesting point about the memorability of the songs. I'll have to keep that in mind when I eventually do a rewatch. Just one or two last points before we before we move on um i've seen a lot of praised heaps on heaps on carla lane's performance as noodle i thought she was really flat and i'm not seeing the confidence that's coming across to other people did you find her 
No, I actually really enjoyed Noodle. I've got to say that actually the supporting cast I thought was excellent. That was like yes, one of the I main reasons why I enjoyed this <laughs> more than yeah. I thought I would. I mean, like the um, the Olivia, the Olivia Coleman uh, bit in the in the inn that felt very Roald Dahl to me. Um, very pantomime villain done really well. Yes, very ghastly. I really enjoyed. I really liked that. I mean, I think. You know, Roldal is gross. Like, you know, Roldal is a like his stories are always a bit grim and dirty and you know, purposefully so. And this did feel a little bit too clean for me, but those two, I was like, Yes, this is Roldal. I feel like the man himself would approve. Um yes, definitely. The, I also I I like the characters that were scrubbing down below that they trapped. <laughs> yeah, I mean, absolutely. So, I wasn't expecting it, but I liked them all, I enjoyed them. I also really liked the villains. I thought all three of them were just having the time of their lives, like <laughs> having Um Yeah, it was it was great fun. I I I didn't hate it. In fact, when I was in the cinema watching it, I enjoyed it quite a bit. I think I got fatigued with it at some point, mostly down to like whimsy, whimsy, sparkles. I'll be having fun. Oh no, the Whimsy's gone. Let's bring the whimsy back. You know that 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 great, <laughs> great it after cycle. a while. Yeah. I I did enjoy the side the 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 um supporting performances. I I think they yes. really made the film. That that's there's what lot... makes it watchable to me. Yeah, there's a lot of great recognizable prestige British talent that are on display here, getting, giving like really solid work. And then there's Hugh Grant. <laughs> oh my God, Hugh Grant. Which I just. I know, um, I know we'll need to wrap this one career up very soon, but I, I can't let this go without saying that in, it's one of, easily one of the most unintentionally hilarious and bizarre performances of the year, him playing the Oompa Loompa. Because, and and it's, it's actually, it's a really bizarre, it's a really strange situation because it's, it's hard to actually, you know, seriously critique the, critique the performance. Because what you're essentially being presented with is this distractingly shoddy CGI job that's obviously not helping his performance anyway. But then you've also got, you know, this is combined with a performance where it is glaringly, and I mean glaringly obvious, that Hugh Grant wants to be anywhere but this film. He's just got this expression of, like, perpetual irritation throughout the entire film. It's like every single line he delivers is giving him indigestion. It's like, it's, it's like, it's actually, acting in this film is, like, a painful experience for him. And it's, it actually, like, made me die in so many scenes. Like, when he starts dancing and, you, and he just looks furious with Timothy Chalamet, I'm just like, this is just, this is too, <laughs> this is too good to be true. It is, it, it is truly... <laughs> It's like a, a a child humming a tantrum, but like knowing he has to do his homework anyway. <laughs> it really is like that. Oh my god. Um. Yes, but you know what? I'm glad it exists out in the world. <laughs> the memes have been glorious. Indeed. Indeed. When when you sent me the gif of him doing the dance, and I'd forgotten about his performance, kind of slightly purged it from my mind. I was just it brought back a whole boatload of comedy that i did not know i needed that evening so thank you well you're welcome let's move on from wonka um and to our next film that has been talked about quite a bit leave the world behind this is a netflix um original is that correct 
It is. It's um, written and directed by the genius that is Sam Esmail, show, showrunner, creator, and main writer of Mr. Robot, one of my favorite TV dramas of all time. Center, and you, you know, you know how much I love this show. I, I do know. <laughs> You've heard me bang on about it time and time again. So it centers around a couple played by Ethan Hawke and Julia Roberts who take their kids away from the city for a kind of nice weekend in sort of a, the suburbs out sort of like New Jersey way out in the forest um, in this very kind of nice high tech, very plush millionaire style house. They're, the phones and kind of TV signal eventually go out one night and they are suddenly... Um, sort of met in, at the door of the house by the actual owners of the house who have rented it out, played by Mahershala Ali, and um, uh, that man is there with his daughter, and they say, oh, you know, I know you don't know us, but we own the house, and, you know, we need to come in, and we need to, uh, we'll refund you part of the money, and so I can show you, I can show you things that prove, you know, we're not, you know, unsafe, and we're not dangerous, and um, so you've kind of got this sort of, very sort of tense sort of battle of wits, and sort of so shift in power dynamics as sort of Julia Roberts and Ethan Hawke don't really know whether to trust these two. All the while you've got what seems like the beginnings of a cyber war or maybe potential terrorist attack occurring in the background of all of this, that's sort of downing planes and causing sort of all manner of like kind of apocalyptic looking technological issues. And um, it essentially runs like an, a, you know, a feature length you know, a quite, a quite long, overly extended, I would argue, episode of the Twilight Zone. But, you know, considering it was made by Sam Esmail, I was like, sign me right up. You know, and, and every so often I think there is space for an enjoyment to be had with a big budget kind of sci-fi caper that takes a simple premise and runs with it and kind of keeps the audience guessing and doesn't take itself too seriously. So, you know, I was I was ready for this. I was ready to enjoy this and have like a zany fun time with it, if that's what was being delivered but as this was only ended up being half as interesting as these descriptions would imply begins with this really kind of awkward tonal imbalance that i think speaks to a general issue that permeates the rest of the film <clears throat> you get these sweeping panoramic kind of views of earth from space to kind of the opening shots of the film and they're accompanied by these very theatrical classical music and kind of string hits and you get followed by these very kind of striking and cleanly framed tableaus of New York. You know, Sam Esmail knows how to make, you know, the most ordinary and mundane of everyday scenarios and locations look, you know, pristinely cinematic. And this primed me for what I thought was going to be like a very operatically melodramatic take on like an end of days type sci-fi scenario and how people respond to it. Not new thematic territory, but potentially fun. But then we're pre presented with this like glaringly ham-fisted exposition to like lay the narrative's foundation, delivered by Julia Roberts to Ethan Hawke in the opening scene. And it makes it very obvious that despite how cinematic Sam Esmail's visual sensibility is, giving, you know, these everyday scenarios an epic presentation, kind of the inertia of the character interaction and the flatness of the dialogue, it kind of, it, it causes the execution of the unfolding mystery to then be really sluggish and uninvolving. Like the periphery of the apocalyptic scenario kind of, in hints at like kind of intent entertainingly leaning into the into the lunacy of the situation but like i kind of spent half the film going oh i'm ready for it to go full absurd and full zany and it kind of it never really did it sort of, well it well there was one or two sequences where it did the one i sent you on facebook of Judy <laughs> roberts kind of no context screaming in the middle of the forest i won't even i'm not even, i'm not going to tell you 
what she was screaming at, but that was kind of unintentionally hilarious. I did have questions about that gif. But <laughs> <laughs> sometimes not having context makes it funnier, you know? Oh, it certainly does. It certainly did in that scenario, and that was why I sent it to you. Um, so there are kind of moments like that that are funny, but I don't even think they're intended to be that way. And the moment-to-moment human drama is really stilted and like, overly serious, despite the calibre of the performances that are on display. You kind of, honestly, 90 minutes in, I really, 90 minutes into the two and a quarter hour runtime, I was really like, when is this actually going to start? I was literally feeling like that. And Sam Esmail also fills the house sequences, you know, where a lot of the film takes place in, with these kind of unconventional spiralling aerials and whip pans and upside down tracking shots that kind of feel very kind of horror movie-esque and psychological thriller-esque. A lot of this actually meant that Leave the World Behind reminded me of like, you know, M. Night Shyamalan's Knock at the Cabin, which has a similarly nihilistic and grave central scenario along with the isolated setting. Where that film works a lot better is that it really heavily leans into the high octane zaniness of the plot for like really great B-movie entertainment, but the score and direction are unset and the performances are, you know, unsettling and intense enough that it kind of, it still really gripped you. And, you know, that's not a perfect film. It's a pretty flawed film. But actually, I did give it a somewhat pleasantly surprised positive review. Whereas, you know, this, I think, is far inferior. Leave the world behind. And it does most of the things that Knock at the Cabin does right wrong. You know, the shifting dynamics and unease between the people in a life-threatening situation with limited information is given the most basic and surface-level examination. There aren't really any, any insightful any insightful developments in the relationships the runtime is exceedingly overlong the mystery is really stagnantly drawn out the pace is plodding the score is filled with the most trite dissonant horror movie creeping strings and these deep reverberating sci-fi synth chords the most unoriginal in that vein that i've heard in a while and to top it off you get instead of like a satisfying answer to any of what is going on you instead get this lackluster expository monologue and then the film ends on a punchline to a completely arbitrary running joke that was like presented like near the start of the film. It's hardly even a running joke. You know, it's so ridiculous. It, I almost want you to watch it just so you can see how ridiculous the ending is. It's 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 so ridiculous. It's almost bold. So yeah, wasn't wasn't a, I almost kind of went wow. I almost have to respect that you were ballsy enough to screw up your ending that much. Um. But yeah, I, I wasn't a fan of this, really. A, a C- minus for this, I wasn't really. This just... I was impatient and bored and fed up by the end. Wow. <laughs> Anything words, indeed. Um, let's move on to something a little bit more positive. Um, and again, I re- reiterate, if you spoil this for me, I'm never speaking to you again. Can we just, you know, set that groundwork? The Boy of the Heron, <laughs> Miyazaki. You know, oh. <laughs> Do you know the basic plot summary? Just so I know what to say and what no, not to say. No, I don't. But I, I, I'm, happy, I'm happy for you to say the basic plot summary. Um, just, you know, don't give me any, any nitty gritties. <laughs> so, The Boy and the Heron, supposedly and reportedly, whether or not we believe him or not is a different matter, but supposedly and reportedly, the last ever film by famed Japanese animated director Hayao Miyazaki from the legendary Studio Ghibli uh, production house. 
who make, have made some of my favourite animated films and some of, I believe, your favourite animated films of all time. I adore the studio. I'm really biased towards their work. I don't like absolutely everything they've done, but I think they've made just so many classics of, of the animated genre in general, not just Japanese. So needless to say, considering this is supposedly his last film and it's just a new Studio Ghibli film anyway, the bar was set very high, as were my expectations. The Boy and the Heron, it centres on a young um, Japanese boy um, who has had to flee Tokyo at the style at the start of the you know Second World Second World War and go to sort of more a rural, rural area of Japan with his father. That in the opening scene, um, he loses his mother in a bombing, so kind of he is sort of racked with grief. And he is taken to this sort of new, sort of more rural area of Japan with this kind of very large sprawling property that has a strange tower at one end of it. He sort of presented with this new stepmother who is very sort of kind and supportive to him, but he's a bit closed off and a bit guarded. He's also stalked by the sort of this strange sort of titular heron character that sort of seems to have sort of a, a mischievous look in its eye. And... I mean, to say, to say any more would maybe to get into more plot details than is necessary, but what I will say is that strange fantastical occurrences start to occur and Mahito must go and search for uh, one of his sort of new family group, which takes him into the spirit world. Now, tonally, this does very much feel like a swan song for Miyazaki in terms of the film's kind of overall very beautifully melancholic, but also kind of hopeful atmosphere, as well as the themes of grief, reconnecting with loved ones, journey of self-discovery, lost souls regaining a new lease on life, retrospective view of mortality, life, death, cultivating a gratifying existence, all very kind of universal, um, archetypal, important human and philosophical themes. I was incredibly excited for this film. And there is a lot, there is quite a bit to like in it there. It has the spirit world, as is to be expected, is characterised with Stibley's usual amount of visual grandeur and majesty. It does have this very kind of emoting and emotive and moving tone that you would expect from this kind of work. And the animation is in many sequences, you know, just the hand-drawn work is just utterly breathtaking. Kind of has this sort of shimmering dark quality to it in some of the more nightmare sequences, but this kind of beautifully wistful, soft sort of texture to it in some of the more alleviating and um, sensitive, delicate moments. Though it started out well and is by no means a bad film, I did like it quite a bit. Considering the bar that I kind of had my expectations at, I must confess to feeling somewhat underwhelmed by it, by the final feature. And based off reading fan reviews and actually just kind of generally listening to people talking about it as I came out of the auditorium, I'm not alone in feeling like this, even though it has had a lot of critical praise heaped on it. Near the start, I was really on board with how much the film was taking its time in establishing this kind of delicately sad mood and how our protagonist is navigating his new home. Much of the film's first movement is kind of sparse on dialogue and with more kind of protracted shot lengths and skeletal but really gorgeous or just plain sort of just um, spotlit alone singular piano chords sort of colouring the score with these short motifs. And this, and the typically kind of alluring texture of the hand-drawn animation, animation was a great tone setter and really kind of settled me in for that, you know, warm, poetic, 
Ghibli tone that I kind of know so well and was really looking forward to with this. I was anticipating, based off this kind of opening movement and based off how weird I'd heard, you know, the latter portions of the film got, this really great tonal balancing act between the poetically sombre and the bombastically weird. However, there didn't end up being much in the way of tonal or pacing variation, and I thought the film suffered because of that. Once you're in the spirit world, it takes the narrative takes on kind of this road movie-like structure. You know, as the character is kind of moving through this sort of various different sections of this sort of new, different dimension, and sort of meeting characters along the way who sort of help him at different points and sort of show him aspects of the world as he sort of grows to learn about it. And I, I, I must say, the assortment of characters that Mojito meets aren't necessarily aren't nearly as distinctive or memorable or vibrant as many from past Ghibli films. I think it lacks a strong central pairing as well. I mean, you do get some time between the boy and the heron, but it doesn't feature nearly as much as I think maybe it could have done to sort of to drive home sort of the key themes. It kind of sort of just does a wrap around on some of those at the end with their sort of relationship. And I didn't really feel like it fully reconciled that or some of its other themes for that matter. I feel like, you know, you think about pairings like um, the the head girl of the village and the main character in Princess Mononoke or the pair or Howl and the lead female character in Howl's Moving Castle or the central pair in uh, Castle in the Sky in Laputa or... Um, the two kids in Ponyo, you know, there are so, I think those key sort of pairings are so vital to a Ghibli film's success and driving the plot forward and giving us a point of investment as our character, you know, charges into large scale fantastical conflicts or emotional shifts in their lives. And I felt like this didn't quite have that fully formed. Now, that would be fine if the main character made up for that development person and personality wise. But he's pretty thinly drawn, personality-wise, and he's not defined by much other than his grief and being headstrong. And maybe perhaps, you know, more developed, you know, maturity-wise than he needed to be for his age. He doesn't have much to his character beyond that, at least that I could, that I could extract. And he doesn't have much agency beyond that either in terms of him inciting plot development, which I thought was a shame. And much of the story is kind of meandered through with extraneous characters met along the journey kind of inciting action and story developments you know rather than our central figure you know learning from or developing through participating in these events himself i feel like the message and theme becomes muddled by the end a lot of the lore is quite murky and i think it clouds the ideas of sort of human growth and there's plenty of characters that feel like they're there to facilitate a plot point rather than you know adding to the action or symbolizing a significant piece of the subtext and I felt like it was light on action and wondrous sequences that that we would normally expect from a Ghibli film. And the, what we do get isn't quite up to the excitement or poignancy standards of previous films. I really wanted the, the grounded human drama of the opening to be alternated and fusing with some really like go-for-broke extravagant weirdness that shook up the tone and shape of the narrative. But it kind of it, it occupies this kind of plateaued, lilting mood through the vast majority of the film. And it kind of makes that two-hour runtime feel a bit of a drag at times. Though I have 
though I have to say, you know, there were times where sort of the, the very sort of soft poetic nature of sort of this, the more human story did feel, um, did feel quite emotive and I did connect to it. You know, this, this wasn't a total wash for me. I did still like it overall. Um, but I did really feel as though there was a clear, the film kind of sacrificed a clear, coherent, concise plot with par was with powerful character development in service of kind of building out a world that didn't, for me, hold a candle in terms of design and heart-rending characters and set pieces to previous works. The ending's quite unceremonious as well. You kind of feel this sense of, or at least I did from the people I was watching the film with, the audience, there was this kind of sense of, is that it at the end? It kind of just ends. It's not bad. It's not bad ending in terms of what happens. It just feels a little bit abrupt. But um, I think a lot of what generally there is to like about Studio Ghibli films is on display here. I think I just, considering it's like the farewell, I think I just wanted it to be bigger and grander of an emotional statement and also just in its visual presentation. I think people also said that about his last farewell, um, The Wind Rises. I personally really loved that film. I, I, I kind think it's of great. thought it was quite beautiful in its, in its quietness. And I, I mean, I'm still, okay, as, as much as I, you know, I appreciate your um, thoughts as always, I think there's, there's part of me that's like, there are Ghibli films that fit into that, um, that kind of, there isn't much going on. Most notably, My Neighbor Totoro. There isn't really a plot <laughs> to My Neighbor Totoro. It's just a kind of group of themes. And then at the end, one of the kids goes missing out of nowhere. And that's kind of how they wrap it up. And I, I think it's less about, you know, the, the story and more about the, you know, the development of the, the children who are, you know, have moved moved house and how they're learning to kind of adapt to their environment and the nature around them. I think maybe when I go in and when I when I go watch it this afternoon, I'm kind of bearing in mind that now I know that it's not going to be a kind of conventional like hero's journey plot, and it might be a little bit meandering. Um, you know, I'm, I'm maybe I'm, I'm going to try and look for those little details where I'm kind of like, what's it trying to do? Because I think some Ghibli films are almost meditative in their kind of presentation. And, you know, part of the enjoyment for me of a Ghibli film is the beautiful music, the beautiful visuals, and, you know, maybe just letting it, letting it take me away with it for a bit. So maybe now that I know how to go in watching it, maybe I'll get a different experience and I'll let you know if that's the case. Yeah, I'd be, it is very meditative and I'd be very interesting to, interested to hear your thoughts. Um, I think in the case of the Totoro comparison, I feel like, I feel like with the boy in the hair and it kind of just... I feel like it doesn't go skeletal. It, it needed to go more skeletal and more meditative and kind of and strip things back, even, I think, even further if it really wanted to sort of do that kind of plotless human examination of sort of the emotions it has at the heart of it. I feel like it, for me personally, I felt like it kind of awkwardly sat in this middle ground and didn't really kind of fully commit to either personally. But that being said, I still think it's very solid. It's probably bottom third of their filmography for me. I know it's very new, but that's kind of personally where I'm kind of just feeling it lands at the moment. I think it's a B, it's a B plus for me. It's it's still pretty solid, and I still would say I liked it quite a bit overall. But I think you know, I kind of went in wanting it to be amazing, and I didn't quite feel it hit that mark. But 
I'd be really interested to hear your experience with it, especially given, you know, what I've primed you for. Right. Nice. Well, we're going to have to move on to our final review of today's episode, and that is Ferrari with Adam Driver. And, okay, I've been aware of this film for quite a while, um, just because of the job that I do. I've been aware of this film for way too long. And my first thought is, are we going to get a car designer cinematic universe? Because it feels like we've got Ferrari. What was the one we had before? Ford versus Ferrari. Well, Le Mans 66 in the UK. Yeah, there was another one as well where it was... um... Was it Rush? No, wait. Lamborghini. Oh, yeah. I can't remember what what it was called. Well, it's called Lamborghini. Oh, is it? Very creative. <laughs> but I'm sure there was there were others as well. But it's like um, you know, we get next. We're gonna have Ford and things like that. Um, Maserati. Maserati. Yeah, you know, <laughs> let's get them all on. Um, this has also got Penelope Cruz in it, and I'm it a Penelope Cruz fan. I think she's fantastic. I was like, okay, Adam Driver, Penelope Cruz, that combination sounds good but i watched the trailer and i was like hmm. <laughs> adam driver seems to recently just be picking films where he has to do the weirdest possible accent uh, <laughs> oh would, yes I'm, the, I'm the accent is interesting what were your thoughts <laughs> so ferrari you know biographical drama based on enzo ferrari you know mastermind behind the the famed car and racing company uh, this centers around sort of his sort of tumultuous relationship with his wife, played by Penelope Cruz, and his mistress, who um, bred him a son, um, played by Shailene Woodley, and also his preparation because you know Ferrari at this time in 1957 was a struggling company, and sort of their their build up to this uh, Mila Milia race, which is a thousand mile race, sort of kind of almost like the reminds me of the Isle of Man TT race. Whereas, except, you know, not on motorbikes, sort of a thousand miles across more rural, pedestrianised areas of Italy and sort of rural areas um, sort of on non-racing designed roads, sort of very dangerous um, and very sort of epic in scale. Um, It's directed by Michael Mann, who I am a great admirer of his work. What you would usually expect from a film from him is, you know, very much on display here. You've got this key conflict on display between a character who is striving very intently for expertise and success in their chosen field at the cost of something resembling a normal and healthy family life. You know, no new territory for a biopic there, but man has applied this sort of thematic framework to sports and crime dramas with a level of humanity and I think emotional precision um, that, I, that I think it makes his spin on this usually stand out amongst the cinematic crowd. It's particularly impactful in heat which is a favorite of mine amongst crime films and movies in general he's also known for like delivering car chases and shootouts and sports events with you know this serious tactile grit and realism you know as much that as he does you know big budget hollywood spectacle it's a big passion project for him he's been i think it's been it was in post-production in like the 90s and then it sort of went through production hell and has sort of it's take it's it's been a real battle for this to see the light of day but he's finally got to here. Unfortunately, there's a very big disparity between the quality of the racing sequences and the quality of, how do we say, everything else. 
um, to talk about the racing, they're unsurprisingly really brilliantly helmed. Um, he's not doing this, you know, shutter angle, 360 degrees, heightened motion blur frame rate thing that he was doing in Public Enemies and Miami Vice, which I just didn't like at all, just made everything look like BTS footage. Um, it's back to, you know, the normal 24 FPS. It's not overly, it's not overly smooth and cheap and rubbery. It's really, you know, visceral and with a ton of forward momentum. It's it, despite, you know, the, you know, you could film these racing scenes at 200 miles per hour, per hour really slickly with a lot of steady cam, but actually he gets really handheld with it. And I loved that. You really felt like you were in the throttling pace of these cars and the danger was palpable in these sequences. There's one actually real life famous crash that this film depicts that was actually that I didn't know about going into the film and the entire cinema. I mean, I wasn't in a particularly big screen, but the entire screen gasped how sort of blunt and terrifying and sort of gruesome but not exploitative and tasteless the rendering of this crash scene was and it sort of really did hit home the risk that the races and sort of ferrari you know puts these people under so you know you really get a gruff tactile physical sense of the damage that's occurring to these cars and to the people driving them and on the sidelines um so terrific stuff there but unfortunately much of the rest of the film outside of the racing it totally falls apart for me in the case of you know adam driver's performance it's he delivers the most one note and uninterestingly performance i can remember since you know john david washington in tenet you know never mind the hokey italian accent to be fair he's not alone in that the rest of the cast aren't up to much good in the dialect department particularly shane lean woodley i mean i think she's saddled with you know the, the you know the dodgiest of the bunch but you know i just adam like driver, to had an amendment that I quite like John David Washington's performance in Tenet. <laughs> oh, do you? <laughs> well, I do. Oh, well. I, do. I thought he was fine. It's the rest of the film that I didn't like. Um, <laughs> sorry, I had that little amendment. I, I, I am a Washington fan. I think he's quite good. But to be um, fair, I think maybe it was it was more down to the script giving him no personality. So maybe it was more the script's fault than his fault. But still, maybe. But yeah, sorry. Yeah. So Adam Driver is what? Yes very flat everything is delivered with such little expression is so monotone that it sucks any personality out of that character i've read that after the death of his son the real enzo ferrari lost a lot of his empathy and became quite cold so it, it could well have been like a deliberate creative decision but i refuse to believe the man had this little emotional range and my god it's like watching an android act at times like i don't know if it was a direction thing on man's part or just a choice by driver and by driver but it just it, it's so it's so one level all the way through, apart from one scene where he shouts and one scene near the start where he gets a bit tearful at a grave. And I'm just like, it feels like that scene at the start is thrown in just to go, oh, look, he has feelings. And like, now he's going to be like a total dick for the rest of the film. Um, and that kind of justifies that, which, yeah, just, you know, didn't feel connected to him, didn't like him and not even, and didn't even find him interesting. Very one night. Um, Penelope Cruz is doing her usual constant state of mild to, mild to major disgruntlement, solid, solidly as ever. But, you know, I, I've seen her deliver, and I think her accent is probably the best of the bunch, but I've seen her deliver this same performance so many times. It's just not that interesting to me anymore. Like, it's just, it doesn't absorb me. Like, it was cool when you did this in Vicky Cristina Barcelona and won the Oscar, but, like, now it kind of just makes my eyes roll. I'm like, you know, you can do angry well, cool. You know, shocker. Um, Shailene Woodley, she has this really... Th I feel kind of 
agreed for her. She has this really thankless role as the mistress, and it make and it, it's it, she's given barely anything to do emotionally. You know, tied in with the ropiest accent in the whole cast, and it, it sounds like she just wasn't given enough time to pre- to prepare, or you know, was saddled with a pretty you know unmalleable script, and you know, maybe she strikes me as maybe she wasn't directed particularly well by man. Yeah, I feel like she was hard done by here. The screenplay doesn't give enough urgency or detail to the mechanics of building the cars or the training regime for the big race to make that side of the story compelling. It doesn't give enough emotional or runtime weight to Enzo's relationship with his wife or his mistress or his son for that matter. Uh, the edits in the many montages aren't all that graceful. There's little sense of rhythm. The transitions in time and general cussing are, are kind of are clunky and without the elegance or barreling energy you would want from the, an edit in a story about motor racing or, or a biopic for that matter. It's slickly produced biopic because this certainly isn't slickly produced, at least you know not in the human scenes and the montages. And this was actually a real shock to me. It's quite bizarre. I'd be really interested to see if anyone else would pick up on this. The film, at least to my eye and ears, was littered with te- with technical issues that I would not expect in a film with a $95 million budget. I just wouldn't. There are these steady cam shots that pan really awkwardly. You know, gimbal pushings that literally like slight shake up and down as they're moving in. Movement that doesn't even feel like it's intentional on the operator's part. You get these really awkward focus pulls that are clumsy at best, and at worst, they don't even fully pull for a brief moment. It's like they're still the character's still kind of out of focus, and then it kind of lapses back in. It's really strange, and it's not like you know that can be that can be intentional. You know, shallow depth, shallow depth of field, and all that sort of stuff. But it was just, it just didn't. It was distracting. It just didn't feel like it was meant to be there, and this arguably could have been the cinema but it was too like random and specific of an issue if it was like a consistent volume issue on the dialogue i would have said oh that was just the screen but but it honestly didn't feel like that there were like dialogue scenes where the the tracks were muffled whilst others weren't there was a disparity in volume between the cars and the characters lines dialogue tracks that change volume in between shots and are sometimes different for each actor just bizarre and kind of head scratching you know technical oversights that just that just didn't they, they didn't seem like the fault of the cinema they seemed like blemishes on the actual film to me and it just yeah just not impressed by that at all yeah just disappointed by this one i know some people have taken to it and i know some critics have you know um somewhat liked it and said you know yeah it's a mixed bag but there are Overall, it's pretty good. I don't, I don't think that way. I actually think it ends up being quite poor for a lot of the reasons I've mentioned so far. I think we're feeling, feeling another C- minus on this one. And that wraps up our first episode back. Well, I think we've had a pretty good collection. I think we've had some ups and downs in this one. What would you say <laughs> is your favourite out of that bunch? What would be I, your, I st- your recommendation? Despite my reservations with it, I would still say my favourite is Handily. Uh, the boy in the heron i would i would generally recommend people stay away from leave the world behind and ferrari you know wonka which i'm kind of indifferent to you know around sort of a a b minus c plus kind of range i think it's perfectly fine to put that one on there are parts of it that are certainly very magical and very entertaining you know imaginative imaginative set pieces that'll get the kids get the kids excited but um i would say you know those two seek them out 
they'll be, they're kind of worth a cursory watch. Um, but the other two, I would say, you know, you don't need to waste your time with those. And that's everything. So next week, we've got a big one. It's going to be Billy's Best Films of 2023. Are you excited? I'm very excited. I'm, I'm looking forward to like finally just talking up my thoughts, seeing poor things, seeing if that fits into the equation based on all that's been said about it so far and just sort of doing a couple little final rewatches and reviewing my list and giving you the lowdown on what to look back on from the following, from the previous cinematic year. All right. And that's it from us. So please um, subscribe, subscribe to our new YouTube channel, which we've just set up. So we're going to get putting a few extra little bits on there. Um, and yeah, keep listening over the next year for more fantastic reviews. And we will see you then. Bye. See you in the next episode. Thank you for listening. Bye.